This SCCM iCritical Care podcast is sponsored by Hospira Incorporated, the world's leading provider of injectable drugs and infusion technologies. Hospira has an anesthesia and critical care portfolio, which includes Presidex, dexmedetomidine, hydrochloride injection. Through its broad, integrated portfolio, Hospira is uniquely positioned to advance wellness by improving patient and caregiver safety while reducing health care costs. You can find us at www.hospira.com. Welcome to another edition of iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Today I'm speaking with Mitchell M. Levy, MD, FCCM, who is with us to discuss palliative care bundles. Levy was a presenter for the April 26th webcast titled, Integrating the Communication Bundles into Your Intensive Care Unit, which discuss how communication bundles can reduce patient and family anxiety and provide a more positive environment for the critically ill patient. Levy is a professor of medicine and a division chief of pulmonary and critical care medicine at Brown University School of Medicine in Providence, Rhode Island. Thank you for being here, Dr. Levy. My pleasure to be here. So give us a, a basic um, background of, of the objective of the program that you did with the communication bundles and palliative care? Well, we've known for a long time. In fact, most of the published reports in the literature that ask families who lose loved ones in the ICU, what is their most frequent problem, will report conflicts in communication with physicians. And so on the basis of that, we created an initiative that originally, in fact, was titled the Palliative Care Bundle but we later changed to the communication bundle. And we did that because there is often um, a perception of baggage about the term palliative care. And in fact, the idea of enhancing communication between physicians and family members and staff in the ICU is much more easily acceptable than describing it as palliative care initiative. Because the truth is that it's really not just for patients who are actively dying in the ICU. It's for patients who are um, in any a state of critical illness. That is, that it's not just dying patients and their loved ones who require or appreciate enhanced communication with physicians in the ICU. It's, in fact, any patient with critical illness. So your project was initially, you were focused on palliative care, but... It's not so much that, is it a halo effect that you're talking about? That we, we, we clinicians talk about death and dying poorly. We clearly talk about expectations in around death and dying poorly. But you see that more as a symptom of an overlying problem of, of communication in general. Exactly. I think, honestly, it comes down to the fact, and it's remarkable when you think about that there is no formal course in communication skills in medical schools. More recently, over the last five years, an increasing number of medical schools and uh, residency programs are incorporating formal instruction and communication skills with their training programs, but it's still few and far between. And that's remarkable when you think about the fact that, in in truth, 95% of what we do in medicine is all about communication. And the fact that we're so poorly trained in communication, and I don't think... I really don't think anyone in medicine or any of our closely related colleagues, such as nursing and respiratory therapy and social work, the folks that we come in contact and our patients and families, I might add, uh, would argue with the fact that we're not highly trained in communication. 
And so it, what it really uh, devolves to is a kind of a natural development of communication skills for most clinicians. And as we know, that comes naturally to some folks, and so they become good at it, or they were already good at when when they went into medical training, or they don't. And I think this is an, perhaps an oversimplification, but if you ask if you ask people, lay people, well, all of us, what we think makes a good doc, we'll often talk about uh, someone who puts us at ease, who makes us feel comfortable, who we readily trust, and who we feel can communicate very complex medical problems and medical decisions that are required in a very simple and open way. So it really is communication skills uh, and the process of skillfulness in communicating these difficult problems that defines us as good, uh, high-quality physicians. It's interesting. I, I think that when it comes to issues of managing sepsis or respiratory failure, we're probably obviously well-trained with that. We're probably pretty good with that. But when we, you know, changing the context of the, the physician-patient interaction, if we talk about a internist in his office managing a patient who has a chronic disease like hypertension or diabetes, would it be your position that that communication interaction in that very simplified context is inadequate compared to where we need to be in, in 2012? Yeah, I think so. You know, some physicians might argue with that. Um, but I, I think the truth is that having patients' best interest at heart doesn't guarantee that we're good communicators. It's, it's no different than saying that when we're in a loving relationship, uh, just because we have deep love for a partner doesn't automatically mean that we do a good job of communication. So in the same way, it's true for all of us as physicians. And that's why... I think it's important that we incorporate some formal training and communications uh, skills and hold ourselves accountable for how well we do or don't do in communicating with patients and their loved ones during the dying process. I'm really trying to get my head around this because this is a topic we talk a lot about in our ICU and we're actually having some quality grants. Going back to that, that single patient surgeon, patient physician office interaction, the environment of the intensive care unit is so much more complicated because of multiple providers and multiple services. You've got, you know, respiratory therapists and pharmacists. You've got surrogate decision makers who may have a different value set amongst themselves and they have different values than the patient. So where do we get started? Well, knowing how to get started is very important, and I think it's extremely important, not just for us as individual docs, but if we're going to take the lead in introducing that this into our institutions, it then becomes important for us to anticipate uh, the kind of problems we're going to encounter and also know what the best starting point is. So for me, I think that the best starting point is gaining some consensus of acknowledging that there's a problem. You can't fix something. You can't address an issue if there's not a general agreement on whether or not the issue exists. So I think the first point is for people to review the literature and talk about the fact that the literature makes very clear of the fact that there's a high prevalence of anxiety and depression amongst uh, loved ones, family members who lose 
who during the dying process in the ICU, it's, that's not rocket science. One would expect that the grief reaction would lead to at least some element of depression and anxiety and even post-traumatic stress disorder in families whose loved ones are dying in the ICU. But the literature also says that not only is that prevalent and is there a high incidence of it, but it is related to communication conflicts. That is, receiving conflicting information from different members of the care team. Uh, communication conflicts with physicians all increase the symptoms of depression and anxiety. So that's one. Two, not only are those symptoms worsened by poor communication from clinicians, but in fact it lasts a long time. So there's there are data almost from 10 years ago now that demonstrate that if you survey family members 10 years, this is a study from France, if you study and survey family members a year after they lost their loved one, their loved one died in the ICU, they will still report a certain measure of anxiety and depression. And they will, and in the data that was collected, one of the risk factors for those symptoms persisting out to one year is, in fact, reports of family conflict with physicians and poor communication. And there are, and we don't really have time to go into all the data, but suffice it to say, there are also good data that suggests that if you if you survey families who are in the ICU, I'm sorry, who lose their lose their loved ones uh, during an ICU stay or shortly afterwards, versus a family whose loved ones were never in the ICU but just were on the wards, or families whose loved ones died at home, it's the families whose loved ones died in the ICU that tend to report the highest degree of conflict with physicians and the highest incidence of decisions being made uh, that don't reflect the wishes of the patient or family. So I think it's starting at that point of saying, well, we can't ignore every survey. We can make excuses, but at a certain point, we have to acknowledge that we've got a problem. And that's what I think is the starting point. And then from there, you can begin to build a program, a collaborative program, a multidisciplinary program for improving communication and developing some way of tracking how well we're doing. So tracking, that would mean that we would be using some sort of performance metrics. Exactly. And I, I think that's the point. And a lot of physicians resist the use of performance metrics because they don't, we often don't like to give up our autonomy. And we really like to believe that if we have, our, as I said before, our patient's best interests at heart, then that should be good enough to ensure high-quality care. But the truth is, is that it's easy to forget. And it's really, it's really, it's, there are so many things to keep track of at the bedside. It's, it's a relatively simple to, to just simply forget to do certain things. So the idea of tracking our performance through the use of performance measures or performance metrics can help to serve as a reminder for clinicians to do the right thing at the bedside. And although we resist it, the data in the literature are becoming much more clear that when we allow ourselves to work with performance metrics, there is evidence that not just the performance uh, performance improves, but outcomes improve as well. So what does that look like? I mean, if you're in the, my intensive care unit and you're monitoring me for my performance metrics, 
what are those metrics and what are, are those scripted interactions or are those talking points? Is that is it a, a multidisciplinary team or, you know, I hear you because? what? How, how do we improve our performance? Yeah, so let's start first with the metrics and then I'd like to talk a little bit about a scripted family meeting. So first, the metrics. Um, the, the metrics themselves that we've used and these metrics come, uh, were developed now by the institute Institute for Healthcare Improvement, the IHI, and it was used in the, they were used in New Jersey and now in the state of Rhode Island in the Rhode Island ICU Collaborative. And in addition, they reflect the work also of Peter Pronobost and Judy Nelson with the VHA initiative that was published about six years ago or so. And they're, they're all a little different, but there's some fundamental core measures that are similar. And the key points to emphasize are first, it is a multidisciplinary approach. Some of these metrics are to be done by the nursing staff in the ICU and some by the physicians. And that there are two groupings or bundles, and I think many of our listeners are aware of the term bundle. So there's two. There's one on day, one bundle on day one and one bundle on day three. And the day one measures are sixfold. And the first is, that a proxy decision maker is identified and documented in a medical record. Now that's important because it's not just someone to whom the medical team should speak because often that is different than the person who has legal responsibility as a surrogate decision maker. So it's clearly an aspect of qualitative care to identify that early in the ICU stay and have that name in the chart. And that's often done by nursing staff. So that's day, that's day one, measure one. The second is day one, measure two, which is the presence or absence of an advanced directive, which is identified and documented in the medical record. And again, that's very important. Um, often families, or patients rather, come to the intensive care unit. They have a pre-identified advanced directive, and we just neglect to ask. And sometimes it's the ward clerk that asks in the emergency department, and then that doesn't get transmitted all that well to the to the admitting team or to the team in the intensive care unit. So identifying an advanced directive and documenting that in the chart. The third element is CPR status addressed and documented in the medical record within 24 hours. And that's important. Because it's not just simply what was your code status last year, it's readdressing with the patient or if they can't communicate with their surrogate decision maker and family, their loved ones, what do they want their resuscitation status to be, especially in light of this current illness. So readdressing CPR status and documenting that in the chart in the first 24 hours is an extremely important metric to drive improved communication uh, between the ICU team and the patient or the patient's loved ones. The fourth and fifth metrics are pain assessed and documented and dyspnea assessed and documented in the medical record. Now, there's a high degree of compliance with those because the regulatory agencies, namely the Joint Commission, require a assessment scale for both for pain in particular and I believe is dyspnea as well. So those are two elements that we put in knowing that there would be a high degree of compliance with both those. 
And then the final one uh, of the day measures is that an ICU information brochure is provided to the family and that it's documented in the medical record within 24 hours. And let me stop there because those are the six of day one. And I think the important thing to mention is, one, uh, this is a very much about documentation. And a lot of ICUs already do this, but they don't document it very well. And two, all of these measures have a fair amount of data, a body of evidence behind all of them that suggests strongly that these measures are consistent with unmet family needs in the intensive care unit. And the distribution of an information leaflet has been shown in previous studies to improve family satisfaction with communication in the ICU. It's really kind of mind-boggling because these really aren't that complicated. No. It's, it's classic medicine that we have to prove common sense before people will adopt it, and that's what we have here. We have an example of things that if, and really in many ways that's what these measures have come from. They've come from asking families over a period of 10 years in different studies, what's important to you when you come into the intensive care unit? And all of these metrics have been culled from those kind of surveys and have been shown in different studies that when you comply with these metrics, in fact, family satisfaction is higher. So you're absolutely right. It's it's almost shocking that we need metrics to drive practice uh, to be consistent with what, for many of us, is obvious that we should that we should provide for the patients. Well, forgive me if I'm making this more complicated than maybe it needs to, but is it the items that you mentioned, you know, like the CPR status and advanced directives and surrogate, or this care team is interacting with items that are important? Is it really the information that's being transferred, or is it the fact that there's a dialogue that's going on relative to things that sometimes we in the ICUs are not very comfortable talking about initially, about death and dying, resuscitation status and surrogate decision-making? So I think that's an outstanding question, and it's really an unanswered question. And the interesting thing is that that's, that's true not just for the communication bundles, but it's true for many kinds of bundles. And when the most common ones are sepsis, uh, central line-associated bloodstream infections, and ventilator-associated pneumonia, and the big question is, is it the individual elements that really make the difference, or is it just heightened awareness and sensitivity that creates a different environment of care around these particular disease states. So in this instance, for communication and the palliative care initiative, the question is, is it really just ensuring that there's an information brochure and that we ask about CPR status and find out whether there's an advanced directive? Or are we changing the environment so that people in the ICU whether it's physicians or nurses or the other um, colleagues that work in the ICU, are more aware of the importance of communication. And so suddenly the little things, the times when we may feel ordinarily we're too busy to take a moment and care and be present, actually change and we just intuitively adopt a more communicative approach which really changes the process and improves care. And personally, I think it's the latter. But I, I think it'll be a long time before we can address those. And probably the best example is the day three measures. So if you look at the day three measures, and now these are much more physician-specific, these really are about communication. So, for instance, the first metric,
is overall metric number seven, is that a family meeting is scheduled, occurs, and documented within three days of admission to the intensive care unit. And then the next two metrics are that patient prognosis and patient's goals are discussed and documented at the family meeting. So really, uh, metrics seven, eight, and nine are all the same. That is that you schedule and conduct a multidisciplinary, that is a nurse and physician at least, uh, meeting with the patient or the patient and the loved ones or just the loved ones within 72 hours of admission to the intensive care unit and that at that meeting, patients, uh, the prognosis and the goals are discussed and documented in the chart. So you can see those are three metrics that um, basically are sketching out how to communicate with a patient and their loved one. In the three days, I'm sure that's not random, but that's been an interval of time where families have been allowed to process everything that's been going on, or how did we get it three days versus 24? Right. So there is a number of studies in the literature that have demonstrated that when these are conducted within three days, that you enhance communication and family satisfaction goes up. So the choice of three days is called from the uh, data reported in the literature that three days seems to be optimal. And, and I also think that it's a combination of what's realistic. It's hard to um, – this is an in-depth family meeting, remember. So, sure, there's an initial discussion with family, but sitting down and really talking about prognosis and goals often doesn't happen in the first 24 hours. So it's giving three days for that to occur. Are, are there any additional uh, performance metrics that we haven't mentioned? Well, the final metric uh, is also in the day three bundle. And as I said already, the first three metrics are about family meetings uh, being held and uh, documented. And the final metric, which is the 10th overall, is that the need for spiritual care was evaluated provided and documented within three days. So this day three measure uh, bundle are what happens in the first 72 hours. And, and I will tell you that in our institution, and we could talk a little bit more about this, we have a statewide initiative. Th this last metric is very important. It's just simply saying to families, um, is there anything I could do for you or your loved one? Would you like us to get pastoral care? And you have to be careful, of course, about not being too specific and not offend families' uh, um, cultural approach. And just simply say, is there anything I can do for you or your loved one? Can we get you spiritual care? And it's remarkable to see how often families are relieved to have that question asked. Or e even if they don't want it, to just have the question asked and acknowledge that that might be important for their loved one or them for that matter, is very, very important. So so I, I think that metric is extremely important. Now, this meeting's occurring at three days, and this is with the family. Is this the same thing, or is this different from a scripted family meeting? Well, the scripted family is different, and this is a nice opportunity to talk about it. The, this scripted family meeting, which has been reported in the literature previously by Randy Curtis and has been used in a couple of studies, is called VALUE, V-A-L-U-E. Now, it's interesting. The idea of a scripted family meeting is not so much to control what clinicians say. It's simply for those of us for whom communication does not come naturally. It's helpful to have a little 
script in our mind about what we should be doing when we sit down. And in fact, it's no different than any other performance metric because life goes by so quickly. We're so busy in the intensive care unit that when you take time off from your rounds or your busy day in the ICU and you suddenly find yourself in with a family member or several members, it's really helpful to have a bit of an infrastructure around which to build your family meeting. So the scripted family meeting is V for valuing and appreciate what the family members say, A, acknowledge the family members' emotions, and I'll come back to this in a moment, L, to listen, U, to ask questions that allow the caregiver to understand who the patient was or is as a person, and finally E, to elicit questions from family members. So you can hear already, right, that these are just things that we all do for the most part, but it's just helpful to kind of have, it's almost like a checklist. And value is an easy, especially during a family meeting, is a relatively easy acronym to remember. And the idea is first, that we appreciate what family members are telling us. Often, if we, if we just give them an opportunity, family members will tell us what their loved one would want. And that's really essentially what we're doing. We're evoking and respecting what the family members say. And remember, you know this, during the dying process, family members, especially in the hospital or the intensive care unit, people feel avoided. They feel abandoned. And so just stopping and honoring what they do and what they say is extremely important and very therapeutic. A, which is acknowledging the emotions, is also important because as caregivers, we tend to shy away from anger in particular or hysteria, for that matter, what we consider to be hysteria. And it's very important for family members, especially if they come into the intensive care unit and they have a sense that their loved one was uh, poorly treated, either in an outside hospital or on the ward. It's not so much that we have to agree with family members, but at least we just have to acknowledge it. We can't just simply ignore their anger and hope that it's going to go away. So the acknowledgement of the intensity of these emotions is often very therapeutic for family members. The third is to listen, and I always talk about this, because we're just not trained as physicians in particular, but caregivers in general in medicine as good listeners. And it's also a matter of common sense. If we see our significant other at the end of the day, and they've had a long day as well, and they can tell that we're not paying attention, we often get a sharp response from them sort of as a wake-up call. It's no different with family members in the unit. It's no different at all. People know when you're not listening. It's Especially if you're in a heightened state from grief and uh, other pressures that make you more focused and more aware of your environment, when the caregiver in front of you is clearly not listening, you know it. So listening is important as a scripting reminder. The you... Is, is I mentioned it a little earlier, but you want to ask questions that evoke the, the patient for the caregiver. So often, as we know, families will say, well, he didn't talk to me that much about what he wants. And the families just don't want to be on the spot. So it's helpful to take a moment and say, well, tell me about your loved one. Was he very independent? Did he like, did he, did he not want to ask for help? Did he mind being dependent? And often families 
when you no longer ask them what would he want, but you start to say, tell me a little bit about him, they're extremely forthcoming when say, oh, he was really independent, he was this, he was not dependent, he was sick his whole life. You begin to get a picture of how that patient is perceived by their loved ones that you can then begin to use to help guide the decision-making process because they're telling you, in so many words, what they think their loved one would want without saying it like that. So that's very important. And then the final piece is E, which is elicited questions from family members. So the point here is, is to involve them in the decision-making, which is, so if you can't already tell, it's important to say to the family members, so is everyone in agreement about this? Um, is there anything I haven't told you? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's important to ask questions of family members and ask them what they heard you say as a caregiver. So eliciting questions from family members is another way that facilitates communication between the caregivers and family. So taken together, this value system is, as we keep saying, not exactly rocket science, but it's just a way for a clinician, especially a young clinician in training, to go into that room and not forget to do something important, like ask the patient's loved ones if they know what you're talking about. So a really simple way of getting a checklist for that enhanced communication skills. So if I can just summarize and make sure that I'm following with you. You know, we talk about communication. It seems like a very active process. But you're talking more about an active listening, uh, allowing the patient and their families, because this acronym applies to both families and patients equally, but listening to them and, and allowing them to have the opportunity to feel that they're being heard. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think when we teach end-of-life skills here at Brown to our fellows and house staff, one of the pieces that we do that I think is the most important is we teach listening skills. Just listening skills, not even communication skills. Let's just start with learning how to listen. So we actually do an exercise where we uh, partner up and we get two, two members of the house staff and we give them something that they have to talk about, like tell us about the impact of duty hours on uh, patient transfers and handoffs. And we give each person three to five minutes, and we time it, and we have a talker and a listener. And during that time, the listener is not allowed to do anything but listen. And then we have a timer, and the bell rings, and then the next three to five minutes is the listener relaying what they heard from the person who was talking, and then they reverse roles, and the whole process happens again. It's it's a really compelling, eye-opening practice which gives you insight into how difficult it is to just do deep passive listening but that's exactly and everybody knows this when you when you're in grief and something's going on for a family member you want to be heard and often we don't provide that for families and their loved ones for patients and their loved ones so forgive my oversimplification but it seems like in my i have five children and well, yeah, <laughs> but with you get all the drama of five kids, and sometimes yeah. um, one of our own children will come to you with a big problem, or it would be a big problem for them, maybe not for me, about you know interactions at school or sports, and I feel immediate that um, I need to try to solve this problem. 
and my wife will say, they just want you to listen. You don't need to solve the problem. No actions required. Is that an oversimplification of what you're saying? But I'm not getting it. I'm getting that patients want to be heard. They want to acknowledge that they're being heard. And a lot of times for us as providers, there's no action required other than letting them know that we're listening to them and we're processing it. Yeah, so that's that's perfect because that has to do with um, silence. So in the case of your kids, you know intuitively that you just want to hold them. And and often we want it, we feel like we need to fix it. But because there are kids, it's easier for us to reach out emotionally or physically and literally just hold them. Because you know, I can't make this better for you. This is all part of growing up. The same exact thing is true for the loved ones of our patients. And that is that we walk in that family room and often feel compelled to say something, say the right thing, to say something helpful. And so we wind up just jumping in with a one-liner or we, when there's an expression of deep pain or sorrow, we have a hard time sitting through it physically even. A lot of times I will watch house staff as their leg starts to twitch or they get uncomfortable and fidgety when in fact what's really required and called for at that moment is just silence, that it's okay to literally not say anything. And and I've done that. That uh, I've rehearsed that process with with caregivers as well, where we actually don't. We just start silent, and we don't understand the, or we don't appreciate the therapeutic power of simply being present with another, with a patient or their loved ones, not in a blank way, but in a very kind of heartfelt way, where you're you appreciate the pain that someone's in. You're, you stay there in the room. You don't try to soothe it away artificially with a one-liner. You just sit there with it, and you communicate, I'm here. I'm here for you. That's enormously powerful and helpful for many family members, and it's just a matter of not saying anything. Now, you mentioned, I wrote this down when you said, it, creating an environment of heightened awareness. Now, I remember when I was in business school and finance, they told us that one of the ways of managing conf- or to obtain confidence from investors was to manage their expectations. Is is that kind of what we want to be doing here in medicine as well as be managing patients and families' expectations and in doing so uh, obtain some confidence from them that uh, the, the team and the providers are, are on the right course when it comes to actually providing the appropriate therapies? Well, indirectly, I think that's true. I think... Um, I think when you allow the environment to be more almost mindful, if you if you want to describe it, but more focused, more heightened, what I'm describing as heightened here is the sense of communication between the caregiver team and the family. And the the process of managing their expectations here is the first step is saying, I hear you. I understand what you want. I'm empathetic with your concerns. So that's, that's the first part of capturing them and getting them to understand that you're not trying to avoid these questions. You're not trying to get out of the room. You're happy to be there. That's the first step. And the reason that helps manage expectations is often for caregivers, the expectations of loved ones are somewhat unreasonable. And we have a perception that they're not listening to what we've said. Their expectations are unreasonable. And we don't know how to approach that. Well, the first thing is 
get their attention that they believe that you're listening and just wait there for a while and then you can begin to reiterate and emphasize what you think is the likely outcome or the, the required next course of therapeutic intervention. So it's almost like first you hook them by listening, by being present with them, and then you're in a better position to help guide their decision-making and tell and inform them properly because you have their intention. So that is a process of managing their expectations. Now, you mentioned in the state of Rhode Island that you have um, a lot of these uh, metrics hardwired into your care delivery system. So you have experience using these metrics and, and measuring from them? Yes. We, we have something called the Rhode Island um, ICU Collaborative that's been in existence for about four years. It might be five years now. And we have followed the quality improvement path of many other states and organizations where we measure uh, the safety environment uh, in intensive care units through a questionnaire. And then we started on individual projects. First was CLAPC, the central line associated bloodstream infections, and then the uh, ventilator associated pneumonia bundles. And as I said before, we started dealing with the sepsis bundles. And then finally now we're doing the palliative care or the communication bundles. So we meet three times a year in learning sessions. Uh, and then we do monthly coaching calls where we talk about the obstacles that we've encountered. And we have an online uh, statewide database that basically allows us to enter compliance with the 10 performance metrics I mentioned for the communication bundles, and then it reports it out. It's stored at a statewide level and then report, reports it out. So one of the most important things for improving performance is audit and feedback, and that's what we've done at a statewide level now for five years where we keep track of compliance with the individual bundle elements, and we report it back to the caregivers, uh, multidisciplinary caregivers in the state as a way of demonstrating the progress of their improvement. So I'm clearly learning a great deal about things that we need to be doing in our intensive care unit, and I plan on getting my, my team together and, and going through some of these these metrics, what are some of the problems or resistance or challenges I'm going to have getting from, you know, where I'm at now to where I should be in, in regards to deploying these communication bundles? Well, there are a couple of really important ones, and in particular around the communication bundles that are worth noting. Um, first of all, as you can imagine, the main resistance is going to be from physicians. So as I said before, getting gaining some consensus on the issue and the fact that there's a problem is extremely important. Getting, as with any performance improvement, getting a collaborative interdisciplinary change team is extremely important. So gathering a group of um, key opinion leaders who want to take on this project from physician, from uh, medicine rather, and nursing, respiratory therapy is extremely important. And then I think the final thing is you have to anticipate that there's going to be a fair amount of physician resistance. First of all, if you call it palliative care, you're going to get a lot of resistance, as I alluded to earlier. But second, um, even if you call it communication bundles, physicians don't want to have their communication monitored. We all feel like we're brilliant communicators, and we don't need any help in communication because we care about our patients. So so there's a, and 
I'd add to that, we're all very busy. And so often physicians want to go to the bedside, have a quick conversation with a patient or family, and there's no nurse present, and call that compliance with the family meeting. When in fact, no, you need to have, it can be done in a room, as long as family's there, the patient's awake, the nurse is present, and the physician's present, you discuss prognosis, goals, and you document it in the chart. In order to get so-called credit, quote, close, quote, for this family meeting, the physician has to make sure it's not just him or her there, that there's another discipline, in particular nursing, and they record in the chart what was discussed. So that's, that's going to be the key, because physicians will say they don't have time, it's not necessary, they don't want to be part of a process that they didn't initiate. And I think the two most important resistances are uh, around the concept of palliative care and the, the fact of holding the family meetings, which physicians feel take too long. Do you have families present uh, in the ICU while you're rounding? Yes, we do. We have families present. Sometimes they join rounds. We encourage them to be in the room when we round on uh, patients so we can talk if the patient's awake uh, so that we can talk about the, the rounds and what we just discussed if they weren't on the rounds table. What about families present during the code? We give families that option. We've had that in, in place for almost 10 years now in our intensive care unit, and I will tell you that it is a rare family that wants to be there when we're coding a family member, and I don't have any objection to it. Uh, about a year ago, I had someone who was present while I was putting a chest tube in and while we were resuscitating a patient. Most families, when they see that, they just they go into shutdown mode. So it may be the experience of other folks who feel that families really are happy to see it, but it hasn't led me to say to discourage families because I think if families feel it will bring them some measure of closure, I embrace it. But my experience has been that most families don't want it. We've been talking to Dr. Mitchell Levy, MDFCCM, who's Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at Brown University. He was recently uh, moderated a webcast uh, on the Society of Critical Care Medicine website, Integrating in the uh, Communication Bundles into Your Intensive Care Unit. Dr. Levy, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Joe. This concludes another edition of the I Critical Care Podcast. You can find the latest episodes and archives at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare. I'd also like to mention that you can now find the SCCM podcast on Stitcher and Beyond Pod as well as on iTunes. We're excited about providing more content and more ways to listen. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Hospira Incorporated is the world's leading provider of injectable drugs and infusion technologies. Hospira has an anesthesia and critical care portfolio, which includes Presidex, dexmedetomidine, hydrochloride injection. Through its broad, integrated portfolio, Hospira is uniquely positioned to advance wellness by improving patient and caregiver safety while reducing health care costs. You can find us at www.haspira.com. Jeffrey Guy, MD, MSC, MMHC, is editor of the iCritical Care Podcasts. He is an associate professor of surgery and director of the Regional Burn Center and Acute Operative Services at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. At Vanderbilt, he co-directs a medical student immersion course on critical care physiology, a program he helped develop. He also established a sustainment training program for U.S. combat medics. His clinical practice is focused on critical care.
pediatric and adult burn surgery, and emergency general surgery. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.